Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are, whenever you are. I'm John. This is the American Christian Podcast and Video. Well, it's getting pretty crazy out there. It's been pretty crazy out there for a few weeks now, maybe even a month or so. It's It's been getting nuts, that's for sure. Um, but at least here in Helena, we're starting to stock the toilet paper back up, so that's nice. The grocery stores are starting to get a little bit fuller. Um... So out here, we've been, we're going on our third week of lockdown. Um, of course, that doesn't really affect me personally because my job title is considered essential. Uh, so praise God for that. I'm not out of work, so I'm doing fine. But uh, as we know, that's not the case for everyone. And uh, so I'm not wanting to rub that in. I really am praying for everyone that things get back to normal here shortly. Um so it seems to me to be very vital to be asking questions in this sort of a situation to see what it is we're doing and is this being beneficial, but not a lot of people are really wanting to take that. Not not a lot of want, people are wanting to hear questions. A lot of people are just wanting to say, well, you know what, you got to do what, you, what the government's saying to do. You know, we should quarantine they they say lock down so lock down you know they don't want you doing this or that or don't do anything so don't do it you know stay home do nothing and everything's going to be hunky dory well but that's not the case is the problem so the problem is the mass panic that has been caused by CDC and by coronavirus in general has really caused a major major hit uh, especially for just the general people. So, I, you know, I work with a guy, for example, who right, right at the beginning of this, he lost 40% of his retirement because of his retirement is set up in the stock market. And you, that bugged him. That obviously it bugged him. You know, that, that that's hard to take, you know, to just in the span of a day or two, just lose that much money. Yeah, that it's hard. You know, you have people who are losing their jobs and, you know, the question is why? If they're completely healthy and they're low risk, why are they losing their jobs? Um, and then you have people on one side, Christians on one side saying, well, you know, we should respect our governing governing authorities. We ought to be listening. And then we have Christians on the other side saying, well, no, blah, blah, blah. We shouldn't be, you know, we can't close church services. That would be, you know, I'm not pinching to Caesar or anything like that. And the question is, where is the middle ground between these two? Is there a middle ground or what, what would be the biblical ground, I guess, would be the answer. You know, what is it? What what would be the common sense route? What how is it that we should be responding to this? Now, one thing that I would be saying, and I, I want to start here, is that there should be some form of concern for coronavirus. I mean, people are dying nonetheless. You know, whether the percentage is three percent or I, I'm looking at the rate today and it looks more like six percent that the CDC is saying according to the death toll, but who knows? So is it the 3%, is it 6%, or is it more like 1%, maybe? Um, I would fall under that line. I, I don't really think that we have enough data to say that it's anything. And when you have the CDC actually telling hospitals and whatnot to 
essentially fudge numbers, just say, you know, okay, even if they haven't been tested, if you think it was coronavirus related, put that down as the cause of death. That's not a legitimate uh, standard. That's not that's not the way that you get your statistic. That that's not a good statistic right there. But uh, you know the question. The thing is, can we ask questions? Can we question our government? Can we question all the regulations that are being put on us? My mom. Mom. I was just talking to my mom the other day, and uh, she said she woke up like twice in the middle of the night, and she heard like helicopters around outside the house. And so she's like, what the heck? She finally gets up and she goes outside and she doesn't see any helicopters. There's a couple drones flying around. The house. You know, so so the city is using and it's not just there, but I mean, there are multiple cities and I believe Italy is doing it. I could be wrong there, but there are many different places who where the law enforcement are actually using drones in order to make sure that people are holding to the social distancing and holding to the uh, CDC regulations. Now. Where where did it come to, how, how did we get to a point where we're in such fear that we're willing to give up that much of our rights, of our constitutional rights, to the point where we're going to let our government stalk us with drones? That's not, and I'm not saying that's happening everywhere, I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorist or anything like that, it, but the reality is it is happening in some areas, and it's not being hidden either. So, I mean, it it is a legitimate thing that's happening. But, you know, wh why are we giving up that much? Why is it to a point where in Mississippi, people who are having drive-in church services, so they're completely following all the regulations, all of the CDC guidelines, being in separate cars, you know, they're away from each other, and basically just listening to the same thing on the radio as the preacher is teaching, and they're all getting $500 tickets at a time, you know? How how is this how is that going to help stop the spread of coronavirus? It's not. That's it just it doesn't make sense. So why can I not question these things? That that's my point. So again, I want to say it is very serious. Whenever someone is dying, especially at the rate, whether it's one percent, whether it's six percent, whether it's forty percent, I don't care what it is, you know, people are dying, and when you deal with the individual who is suffering from someone who is has died because of that that that's you know that's a lot to take in absolutely and we should have concern for that we should have proper um we should be taking proper steps in order to in in order to actually stop that spread i'm in complete agreement i've washed my hands so many times a day throughout the last few weeks my hands are dry i've actually had to start you know, actually using lotion and whatnot because my hands are cracking and peeling because of how much soap and water and hand sanitizer I'm using because I work with the public. So, you, you know, I'm, I'm all for doing that. I'm all for love for your neighbor. But the question is, is love for my sick neighbor, does that mean that I have to not worry about loving my healthy neighbor? So if we have an individual who is completely healthy, let's say, okay, let's, I'll put myself in that position. Let's say, you know, I'm about 24. I'm completely healthy. If I were to get it, more than likely, I'm going to recover. 
Now, does, I'm, I'm not saying that I shouldn't be taking precautions like I just said I am taking precautions because I don't want to spread it to another individual. Now, if I'm completely healthy, why should someone in my position be in a position where, okay, lockdown goes into effect, they close down all essential businesses, so maybe I lose my job. Like I said, my job is considered essential, so I haven't lost my job, praise God. But that's not the case for everyone. So now let's say I do lose my job because it's considered non-essential and it's just a small business and they can't afford to pay me when the business is closed down. Maybe even this business is about to shut down permanently and I'm going to be out of a job completely, not even just temporarily. So now here I am. I have bills that need to be paid. I have small savings. I'm barreling through that savings. I'm, you know, anxiety comes up. It's going to be hard. That's, you know, you look at the suicide rate and the suicide rate right now has skyrocketed. It, you know, people are worried. People are having strong anxiety and the, you know, it, so is this loving to our neighbor? at that point? Is it loving to the healthy neighbor who is probably not going to contract it? If they do contract it, they quarantine themselves for a couple weeks, and which I'm all for quarantine. There is biblical purpose in a quarantine, but the question is, what is the biblical purpose for quarantine? Is it quarantine of the healthy or is it quarantine of the sick? You know, I mean, that's one of the questions we need to ask. Why would we take a completely healthy person in completely destroy their financial situation and not only that but also put them in a position where they can't leave their house without getting tickets you know okay so here in helena i'm from helena montana um we're not really the they're not enforcing the lockdown but we have been under lockdown and it has affected a lot but they're not really enforcing it so we're not getting tickets say for going around. I haven't been stopped for going to work yet. But, you know, in place, there are places where that's happening. You know, um, Michigan has to have a printout of a, a notice saying, yep, they're considered an essential worker. Now, here in Montana, they are giving us that notice, but we don't really need to have it. So at least here in Helena, that may not be the same across the state, but at least here in Helena. Um, but then you also have people freaking out to a point where now someone is trying to sue the city of Helena because they're not taking it seriously. But here we have, uh, once again, we have here in Helena, little stores are kind of the only thing that we have. There's not mass amounts of just huge stores. We have like a Walmart, we have a Target and, I mean, those are like the big superstores that we have. I mean, we have Super One and Winco, but, I mean, most of you are probably not even going to know what the, what that is. Because, I mean, it's just like, it's another grocery store, but it's not, you know, it's not something big. It's not, we don't have superstores, we don't have malls or anything like that. We just have, like, little stores run by individuals and little restaurants run by individuals. You know, one of my favorite restaurants to actually take my wife to at, on Sunday is closed down. Will it open back up? I sure hope so, you know. But the thing is, is if we're dealing, wh why are we taking someone who's completely healthy, who's probably not going to wind up with a disease, out of fear of the possibility that they might get the disease, and now if they do get the disease, they have a 3% chance, if you listen to the CDC, um, to say they might die. 
It just, it doesn't seem logical in that situation. It doesn't seem logical to take away that person's job to make them actually use the entirety of their savings. It doesn't make sense to take, uh, you know, to crash the economy and to ruin the stock market. Like I said, my friend who just lost 40% of his retirement because of all of this, you know, how is that helping? How is that beneficial to him? It just, it it's not, it doesn't, it's not logical. It's not being thought through. I think what's happening is we're coming to a point where we're fearing death. And so we're, you know, maybe even we have good motives. I'm not saying that there's not good motives behind it. You know, stopping the spread of disease is a good motive. But the question is how we're doing it. Is that the best? I heard it put one way. Um, is the cure going to be more dangerous than the disease? And, you know, I think that's a valid question to be asking. Again, this is very serious, and I want to stress that point. It's a very serious thing that's going on, just like any disease that comes through here. I would not want to belittle the situation. I wouldn't want to make it a little minor note that's not a, you know, I wouldn't want to say that it's just like the common cold or that, you know, rub some dirt in it and you'll be better. I don't want to I'm not going to be that guy who says that. No, I think this is very serious. It is serious when people are dying, when people are getting sick, you know, especially when you're dealing like, okay, so here in America alone, dealing with the obesity rate, the diabetes rate, the heart issues and the, uh, you know, breathing issues that it's, those are very common things here. So there are a lot of susceptible people. So how should we be taking care of that? You know, washing our hands, that's absolutely great. You know, maybe a little bit of social distancing. Don't touch people. Don't shake each other's hands. Okay, I'm all for that. You know, I won't shake someone's hand if that's going to be uh, problematic. Okay, that sounds good. But now, should we take, say, the elderly? You know, I've given you the example of, say, the healthy young person. But now, should we take an elderly person who has surgery scheduled for something that's vital that they might actually, if they don't get the surgery, they could die or they would have very serious issues because they're not having the surgery. But out of fear of them maybe contracting this disease when they come out, we're going to cancel that and wait another month to do your to do your surgery, which has happened a lot. Now, you know, when that old elderly person dies because they didn't get the surgery that they needed, you know, what what did we really prevent? We didn't prevent their death, did we? Not only that, but okay, so say they don't even die. Like, like Let's just say that they just, they have another month where they have to live in the condition that they're in. You know, what what good are we doing them? Because if they're probably not going to be sick, how are they going to contract it on a, a surgical table? It's not very likely that it's going to happen. I mean, it's just, Looking at the bigger picture, looking at the reality of it, there's a lot going on that's just not, there's a lot that's going on that's just not going to make things better. It's going to make it worse. But, so that's my rant on that. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is there is a serious thing going on, but we should still be trying to ask questions and say what is the 
what what is the best way of going about this? Because we can't always say the government's going to do that. But John, Romans 13, don't you remember? Paul says, well, yes, I know what Paul says. I've, I'm a very big fan of Romans. I read it constantly. But that's not the point. That The point of what Romans 13 would be talking about is the civil magistrate who is doing things according to the way that God has intended him to do it. But now the question is, is are they doing it in a godly manner? Are they taking care of this in a godly manner? Let's take quarantine, for example. Um, okay, so you've heard people saying, oh, well, quarantine is biblical. Okay, what is the biblical quarantine, though? Is it the quarantine of the healthy? No. The biblical standard of quarantine is quarantining the sick. So I would be absolutely 100% okay with, say I contracted it, you know, quarantining in my house or in a hospital room if that's what they absolutely want me to do. Quarantining for two, three weeks if that's what it takes to stop me from spreading it to another individual. Absolutely. You know, do what we need to do here because I do not want someone else who is maybe more susceptible to worse circumstances than me, maybe being a, you know, being in a position where they might die if they get it. You know, I don't want to spread that to someone. I don't want that on my head. Absolutely. But, you know, if I'm completely healthy, why would I stay quarantined? You know, why should I remain under lockdown in a position where I'm losing so much of my padding, financially speaking? What, you know, what good is that going to do me? All that's going to do. So when you look at what the unemployment rate is, it's jumped up like another, it's jumped up. I think the last I looked at it, it was like 4.4%, you know, versus the 3.5% that we were at, you know, I mean, it's jumped up a lot. There are thousands of people out of work who are now becoming government dependent. That's not a good thing. We're not meant to be government dependent. That's not how, that's not what we're, that's not how we're supposed to be living. We're not supposed to be relying on our government to take care of us. But unfortunately, that's just, that's where we're at. No, I mean, I don't want it to be misunderstood. I'm not saying unemployment's a bad thing. I'm, it's a very good thing for people who are in bad positions. What I'm saying is taking a person away from their job that they were working and now putting them in a position where they have to be relying on the government out of fear that they might get sick, and if they get sick, they may possibly die, is not, it's not logical. It's not going to, it's not beneficial. So the thing, we we just need to pay more attention to what we're doing, I think. I think we need to ask a little bit more questions and say, hey, is this actually going to be, is this going to work? Is this actually going to stop the spread? And so far it hasn't, you know, so far it has not slowed down the spread. As a matter of fact, the spread is speed, speeded up. So, I mean, this is not something that seems to be working and it seems to be doing a lot more damage. A lot more people seem to be suffering or, and or dying from uh, what the way that we're handling the situation than from the disease itself. You know, it, anyway, so 
another thing I wanted to bring up, I've had uh, quite a few conversations this week dealing with, say, canon and, say, King James versus NASB or things like that, different translations, and how do we know that we have what would have been originally written, and uh, so I'm not going to do, like, a whole, like, major thing on it, but I wanted to talk a little bit about it just for the heck of it. Um, so how do we know that what we have in the Bible, how do we know that this is actually what the original authors taught, what the original authors wrote? Um, so first, you know, I would say as a Christian, internally looking at what it is, what it says, what does Jesus say? Jesus says specifically, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. Um, so how much trust would we have in Jesus at that point? Now we can say, for example, the resurrection is a historical reality. It's not only mentioned, say, in the Bible, but there are other first century historians who are directly there or right there at the time who know this, who, who's seen this happen, or at least seen the claim that it was happened and uh, seen how that was changing history, seen how that was changing things, how things were coming about from it. Um, let me see here. Josephus makes mention of it. Uh, let's see. Tert not Tertullian, what's his name? Tacitus was a Roman historian. He mentions the crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. And so at a certain time, it, he mentions the crucifixion and how he was known, or at least he was called the Messiah. Some said he was the Messiah. Josephus says the same thing. He was persecuted. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he was said to have been the Messiah. So now, if the claim is that Jesus resurrected, and knowing that it, Christianity as a whole started from uh, Judea, or from Jerusalem, I mean, started in Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus would have been put to death. How easy would it be to go to the tomb, open up the tomb, and say, hey, look, here's the body. So now we have other questions that have arised. Well, maybe the disciples stole it away. So with Roman guards standing guard at the tomb, the disciples snuck in the one entrance with a giant stone in front of it and stole away the body. It's not likely. It's not possible. It wouldn't happen. The Roman soldiers who are standing right there would have seen that. But, it did, so, if they don't report that that's what happened, if you don't have dead disciples lying around, that's not what happened. The historical reality is there was an empty tomb that was supposed to be guarded by Roman soldiers. So because it was guarded, we know no one came and stole the body. So what happened then? And this is where you start getting into conspiracy theories. Oh, well, there would have been an earthquake and maybe he fell into the ground and they just didn't notice. Well, again, you know, why would no one have thought of this after the fact, after the disciples are running around and saying, he's risen, he's risen, he's risen. Why wouldn't they go to the tomb and investigate? So if there was a body there, the point is, it would have been found. So the evidence towards the resurrection would be very 
very specific. So now the question is, because of that resurrection, what does that mean to what Jesus says? Because if Jesus prophesied, said he's going to be resurrected, if Old Testament scripture says, yep, this is what's going to happen, and then it does indeed happen, and Jesus has said, my word will not pass away. Not only that, but we have other, say, Paul writes, and he says that all scripture is God-breathed, and that, you know, we have Peter saying that men were carried along as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit when they're writing scripture. So if this is the point, is God able to, this is where the question comes into play, is God able to preserve his word? Well, clearly, the God of the universe who controls everything, who has the entirety of everything at his disposal, guiding and governing every little detail, would have the ability to preserve his word. So now the question is, has he preserved his word? Can we show that from an external source as well? Absolutely we can. I mean, even in modern days, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts alone. We're not That's not even to count the Latin or anything else that we have. You know, I mean, how many copies of the Bible do we have floating around? How easy is it to say, okay, yep, this is probably not the same thing. That's why I can take, say, an ESV or a King James or whatever it is that I'm using, and I can compare it to, say, the New World Translation, and I can read Colossians, and I can say, yep, nope, this isn't accurate. The New World Translation isn't accurate here. The word other isn't here. I can also take Greek text, whether I take my NA28 or whether I take my TR or whatever it is, my Greek trans or Greek text that I have in front of me. I can look and I can say, yep, there is definitely no Greek term for other there. So, nope, not it's not all other things are created through Christ, but all things were created through Christ. You know, I can point to that and I can say there's enough evidence for me to say, yep, this is not what the scriptures are saying. This is not what the original writing would have said. So when we're dealing with just the fluency of the manuscript tradition, we have great attestation. Now people will say, well, I mean, what about textual variations? God couldn't have stopped textual variations. What what does a textual variant have to do with it? So let's take, for example, um, John chapter 1, verse 18. So now the TR, which, you know, the King James Version is where we would would have been translated off the TR. So we would take King James Version and it would say that uh, no one has seen God at any time, paraphrasing, of course, no, no one would have seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is at the side of the Father has made him known. So the only begotten Son is what would have been put in there, the monogenes huyas. And then you would take, say, NASB, ESV, and what it reads, um, the unique God, or the only God. He who was at the side of the Father, he has made him known. The monogenes theos. Well, how would a textual variation come up like that? Well, I mean, it's easy enough that when you are looking at it, what would be a more common thing, you know, if people are saying, looking at the Gospel of John and passages like, say, what we would know as Romans, or not Romans, as John 3.16, we would know it that way. The monogamous uyas is what's used, the only begotten son. He God gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if that's more prominent in the language, as they're going through and they're writing it, 
You know, they're not always having a ton of time or a ton of space to sit here and write. You know, they don't have time to sit here because they're under persecution. You know, anyone could bust in at any minute and say, yep, you have script or these scriptures. So the Jews would say, you have these texts and you're not supposed to have them. We're putting you to death. So they're going to make it quick. I mean, it's easy enough. And not only that, but as you're writing, how often do we sit there and just off the top of our heads, a song comes on the radio while we're working or something like that, and we uh, sing along to it, and we're not really thinking of what the words are. We just know what the words are, because there is a tradition that's already in your head of what's being said. So if they're going through and they see monogamous uias, how easy would it be to sit there and read monogamous theos, or, well, it would have been the other way around, monogamous theos, and think, oh, monogamous uias. It would have been easy enough. We do this even when, you know, if you're a reader, you you know that that does tend to happen. I read books, believe it or not. But as I go through and I read, you know, I find that I go back and I go, oh, wait a minute. I thought it said this, but it actually was this word. Now, the question is, would say a textual variation like that, does it change the theology? Now, some people will argue, oh, well, it's trying to take the deity away from Christ. Well, the older manuscripts that we would have would say monogamous theos, the unique God or the only begotten God. But how do you have an only begotten God? The whole point of monogamous, it's pointing to the uniqueness or the the only factor. It's not really pointing to the begotten. It's not really pointing to the aspect of birth, of physical birth. It's just pointing to the aspect of this is the unique one. He's the uh, only one. That's the point that it's pointing to. So monogamous versus Uyas, well, I mean, he is the only begotten son, so you can argue and you can say, oh, well, it's trying to strip the deity of Christ, but when you take, say, the King James Version that does translate Uyas or the only begotten son, you can still read through the Gospel of John, and unless you have some major, major barriers, you are still going to see Jesus as being defined as God. When he, we, you still come to John 8, and he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. When you come to, uh, say, you know, even in when you're dealing with King James, when you come into Revelation, and he makes clear reference saying that the Yahweh being described in Jeremiah is the Yahweh, or is Jesus, is being described as Jesus, or Jesus is being described as Yahweh. But, you know, so the theology doesn't actually change as much as you would think. Um, I've heard the statistic, or at least the percentage, um, I don't know if it's completely accurate, but I've heard that saying, you know, that the TR, which would be the translation, that would be what was around at the time of the King James Version being made, is it about, it's about 95% accurate according to the, still the 5,000 manuscripts that we have. Now, of course, we would take like the Nessial and the NA-28, and we would say that's got a little more accuracy to it than even the TR. At least that's what the majority of scholars would say. That's what is used in most uh, in most scholarship. That's going to be what's used. That's why the NASB uses it. That's why ESV uses it. Um, so the, the point is that the majority is still going to be the same. Now, of course, there is some differences. Now, why is there some differences? You know, I mean, it's just the understanding, as I explained, it's just the understanding that it's handwritten over the space of thousands of years. So now, okay, so let's say, 
when when they come together and they make the King James Version, well, they only have a handful of Greek texts uh, in the original language. They only have a handful. They don't have the mass amount that we have nowadays. A lot of the, you know, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of Greek today, of Greek New Testament, but that wasn't the case at this point. A lot of those are new finds. Um, things like, you know, findings like, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls, from the 1940s and 50s and 60s uh, really, really built that up. You know, we didn't have near what we had. Uh, we didn't have near what we have today back when the King James is being translated. Now, what, we, what they did have is they had Latin. They had plenty of translations or plenty of uh, writings that were the Latin translation. So, and this is where you find the argument, oh, well, the Bible is just one language translated to another language translated to another language. And the thing is, you know, okay, that may have some significance for that text, but it's still, we can look at the manuscript traditions. Hebrew is not a dead language. Aramaic isn't a dead language. Greek isn't a dead language. We can still look at these and we can say, yep, we have um, older manuscripts and we can see not much has been changed. For example, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found, uh, we have books, for, you know, the book of Isaiah, we have intact the entire portion of Isaiah 53. Now, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copy we had was 900 AD. So it would have been 900 years after uh, Christ. Now, when we come across the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find one that's 100 years before Christ, so 900 B.C., so there's a thousand years difference between it, and they're almost identical. There's a few, a few different changes. I, I wouldn't even say changes, whether it be grammatical mistakes or just over time you can see language changes, things like that, you know, and none of it changes the theology. None of it changes any of the meaning of what you have. I mean, I, you know, it's pretty much accurate. Uh, there's really there's there's hardly any difference between the two, and we're talking about a thousand year span of difference that we have. We don't have anything between that, but from that point to that point, this thousand years stretch, and we see that there's hardly any hardly any difference. So the manuscript tradition is very solid. The scribes were very solid when they do these things. And they have to. I mean, they're dealing with the Word of God. They would have to. It doesn't mean that a slip of a hand or, you know, maybe a smudge here or there, or even when you're dealing with just older text, you're going to have, you know, it sits on a bookshelf. What happens? What happens when you keep a book on a bookshelf? You know, the margins, they get tore up, they collect dust, they get beaten, you know, it fades away. So you might be missing a little bit after a thousand years. You might be missing a little bit of the page. It happens. Not only that, but, you know, rats and mice, they get up in there and they start chewing through. You're going to be missing things. You have water spill or, you know, come in, fall down, water damage. You, there, there's damages that it's going to take. So, you know, there, you're going to have a little bit of difference. There, there's going to be a little bit of difficulty in reading some of it, and that's going to cause a couple questions. That's going to cause a couple of people to say, no, I think this and I think this. It's just it's just the reality of what's going to happen. 
Not everyone had a printing press. Not everyone had a laptop or a tablet where they could just pull it up and say, yep, see, here we go. I just downloaded it off the iCloud. That's not, that, it's, it's not reality to take the abundant sources that we have today and try and say that these people in the past had all of the same resources. It's, it, it doesn't, it's not going to flow. It's not an accurate picture of how history works. It's just the reality of it. So how can we take, say, let's say 1 John 5, 7 with the King James Version. Now, clearly, when you read from the King James Version versus the ESV, you're going to see a major difference there. There is a whole extra part to that verse in the King James Version, it would be, so here, I'll, I'll pull it up real quick just so that I can read it straight from the King James Version. Sorry, give me a minute. Do, 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 do. All right. Computer's being a little slow. Okay, so King James Version would read, For there are three that bear witness, or for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And then the ESV is going to say something along the lines of, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, and it cuts it off there. So now let's, so, so what the difference would be is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. That's going to be the part. And so where does this go? Why, why doesn't the ESV or the NASB translate it? Why, don't, why doesn't the ESV or the NASB have that? So as we have now gained more manuscriptural evidence, what we can see is that was an addition later. Now, does that mean that the scribe was trying to insert something in there? No. It's just the reality that when you have so much paper and then you make a marginal note, and what would the scribes do that came after that scribe? They would see that marginal note, and they don't want to lose anything. So it's included into the text so that they don't lose it. So they take it from the margin, and they put it in there so that when damage happens to that margin, they're not going to lose it. It's going to be safer there. Now, is that adding to the text? No. Is it saying, yep, this is, are they trying to intentionally insert, yep, this portion is added in, this is still God-breathed later? No. That is something that you'll get from TR-onlyism or King James-onlyism that, oh, well, you know, even if this came later, you know, God still, it was still God-inspired, it was still God-breathed. I would say that that portion probably in itself, that specific sentence, isn't actually scripture, but it is reality, it is still truth. It doesn't change any theology that wasn't already in the scriptures. Um, Trinitarian theology is clearly taught in the scriptures already. So here would be my question to someone who would say, um, nope, that would have to be the oldest. I, and this is one of the conversations that I had. I brought this up. 
this verse up and they said, oh no, well, the older manuscripts would have read. And I said, that's, that's not at all the reality. I, you know, I had to explain, I'm dealing with someone at that point who doesn't know Greek, doesn't know anything about the uh, manuscript traditions or anything like that. They're not as studied. They're just kind of taking uh, the word of their King James only as a uh, pastor. But, and, and again, I'm not knocking the King James. It's very good translation. It's very eloquent, very, very beautiful. I love it. You know, it's very, it is accurate, but there are some differences. So what happens here is if you're to insert and say, nope, that's what the original would have read, then basically my question would be, why did Arianism become such a big deal in the earlier centuries, you know, in the second, third century? Why did that become such a major thing, you know, to where the Athanasian's Creed would have to come out saying, nope, God is three divine persons, but one God. Why would you have to have something like that? Why would Arianism have, would have, why would have Arianism have sprouted up the way that it did? Because if you have a text that is agreed amongst both the Arianists and the Orthodox Christianity, the Orthodox Church, if you have a text that is putting out something right here that is saying the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, these three are one, clearly giving the distinct or clearly giving the distinctions of three persons, and yet the oneness that they are all God. If you have that, why would this have been anywhere near a question? Why would it not have been included in, say, the Athanasians' Creed? Why would this not have been in any of the older writings that we can see where people are quoting from this passage, or at least from these passages, why would this not have been a reference put out by any of the early church fathers saying, nope, see, look, clearly the Bible teaches it. Now, of course, you have, they will make comments and use writings from John and writings from other New Testament authors and even Old Testament authors to say, look, Trinitarian theology, this is accurate. Clearly, Jesus was divine. Jesus was actually God in the flesh, not just a prophet, not just whatever you might say he is. That's clear. But why would this not, why, why would we not find any source of being pointed to this? Because this would be like the cork in the board. This would be, you know, the stopping point. This would be absolutely vital. Obviously, there's a later edition, and it's not just taking a position on it. It's looking at the older manuscripts that we have, saying it's not there, and looking at the later manuscripts that we have, and it being there, and understanding what happens when scribes copy. If they make a note, and then the next scribe comes and copy. It's just the reality of how it works. That's why when we look at Mark, we can see that there are different endings. There is um, a shorter ending, then there's a longer ending, and then there's a middle ground ending. That's why we see that. And how does that happen? You know, we can look and we can say, okay, clearly these are marginal notes that were made that were included later, not to be added as though they were scripture not to be added as though it was God-breathed, but to help explain to the reader or even to the scribe who is copying for so that him and his family have a copy of the divine word of God so that they know they can read it and they can say, see, 
that's right, that's what happened. So that they can see, okay, what is it intending to say here, or what happened after here? It's just the reality of how the manuscript tradition goes. And denying that is going to deny a lot a lot of major points you're you're going to miss a lot when you're dealing with the history of the can because if you deny things like that if you deny and you say okay well clearly there is only one way to translate it and it's this way and there could be absolutely no textual variations well then you're never going to have anything you're never going to have anything. And the reason behind that is because you're dealing with fallible people who have tendencies of writing, not inserting, not trying to evilly and maniacally change scripture, but you are going to have a spelling mistake here and there. You are going to have a sleight of the hand, you know, and maybe an alpha looks like a Omicron. It's going to happen. I mean, how is your penmanship? My penmanship is absolutely horrible. And when I'm trying to write Greek, it's even more horrible. It's just, it's the reality of how it works. Now, if the printing press had been around since the days of Moses, okay, maybe we wouldn't have that argument, you know. But unfortunately, we didn't have it until 15th, 16th century. I'm not exactly sure when, but it was... Way, 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 way after the New Testament authors wrote their writings. So the point is, is that when you're dealing with Scripture, you can say, does God have the power to preserve his word? And the answer is absolutely. So any Christian should be able to say, yep, I have... I have good reason to believe that I have in front of me what should be in front of me. And not only that, but when you're dealing with the manuscript tradition, I would see absolutely no reason to say that there is no, that we wouldn't know. Even the majority of scholars would say, yep, you know, maybe we don't have an original manuscript. But what we do have is so much attestation that we can be sure this is most likely what this author said. That's pretty good compared to what we do have. When we have more attestation to say one book in the New Testament than the fact that Alexander was a human being ever actually existed, that's pretty significant. So, anyway, that was my ramble for today, and I hope that blessed you. Uh, you can get this in podcast form at anchor.fm slash American Christian. That would be anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash American Christian. Um, or you can get this video on YouTube. Um, podcast version, you can also get it on podcasting apps like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, things like that. All of those, you can find me there. Um, if you want to message me, you can leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash American Christian, or you can go to our Facebook page, American Christian, and you can send me a message that way as well. Um, like us, share us, and I say us like it's not just me doing this, so, yep, so like the American Christian, share it on your Facebook or wherever 
it is on your social media that you have. Um, like the Facebook page to keep up with everything and see cool memes that I put up about Augustine and just other quotes that I read and I go, I like that and I'm gonna I'm gonna put this on a picture and put it out there so you know you can see all of that. <laughs> anyway, thank you for watching. I hope this was beneficial to you. I hope it blessed you and you guys have a good day. Maybe. Yep, there you go.